Welcome to the Encourageous Podcast. My name is Angel Clark, and I'll be your host. Everyone goes through difficult things in life, but it takes a special type of person to use their pain to help others. That's exactly the kind of people you're going to hear from here on Encourageous. Each episode will tell the story of someone who not only survived their struggle, but is thriving. Join us for vulnerable, firsthand testimonies that will inspire you to press on. Get ready to be encouraged. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning into the Encourageous podcast today. I hope you all have been having a wonderful couple weeks. I have someone with me today who is definitely, who likes to ruffle people's feathers per se, but in a good way. So he is a founder of Two Ministries, and I just want to welcome Shane. Yeah, good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. So Shane, for anyone who hasn't been able to review your work, can you give us a little bio just about who you are? Yeah, sure. I'm a Tennessee boy that fell in love with Jesus down in the Bible Belt. And, you know, I, sometimes I say there's people that I meet that they say their life, you know, their life was a mess and then they met Jesus. And I, I've kind of seen that for me, I was uh, have my life pretty together and I met Jesus and it spun everything upside down, you know. So I, I have been trying to figure out how to follow Jesus for the last uh, 25 years or so up in Philadelphia. So I ended up going to school in Philly, a little college, Eastern University. And uh, I like how Carl Barth said, we need to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in, you know. And so I, I studied actually in undergrad um, sociology and the Bible and a lot of the pursuit of my life has been trying to figure out, as Jesus said, what it means to seek first the kingdom of God, so that the kingdom of God is not just something we go up to when we die, but something we're to usher in while we live, that we're to bring on earth as it is in heaven. So we've been figuring that out on the north side of Philly for the last couple of decades in, in a little community called The Simple Way. And we uh, have been really inspired by the early church in the book of Acts, where it, so they shared everything they had and no one claimed any of their possessions were their own. So uh, our neighborhood, uh, actually our community started with a group of homeless families, uh, mothers and children mostly, that were living in an abandoned Catholic church. And so out of that, we started and all the other stuff that I've done really has surfaced out of that context, you know, so our work to try to do something about gun violence, to rethink incarceration in the mass, you know, kind of prison buildup, uh, even the work around nonviolence in the war in Iraq, all of that came in the context of trying to see less people killed, <laughs> you know, in a, in a better, uh, a, a kind of better value for life. Uh, yes. and, and so, yeah, I, you know, I kind of grew up saying, then I was pro-life, but I only thought about one issue, uh, mm. the issue of abortion. So now all of these other issues of life have, have also, you know, really um, tugged on my heart. Yep. And that's, I love that you mentioned that because that's, that's exactly what we're talking about today is uh, your stance because, you know, you hear a lot of Christians talk about abortion. You hear a lot of Christians talk about homosexuality, you know, are like how that's a sin. Are they welcome in the church? Are they not? But something that you don't 
I at least personally don't ever hear about is the war. So you actually are very vocal about that and you have a really unique perspective because you, you're not, like you said, you're not just reading books and kind of hearing newspaper articles and stuff. You actually went over to the Middle East and I can't remember, um, was it just Iraq or did you go to other countries as well? Yeah, I've been to several countries uh, over in that area in the Middle East. I, I went to Iraq, but I also went to um, Israel and Palestine, and I went to uh, Jordan uh, and also to Afghanistan uh, later, you know, with similar work, trying to be a peacemaker. So, yeah. Yep. So um, it's, it, it is very interesting because that these two pinnacle issues for many Christians have been abortion and sexuality, homosexuality, or, you know, LGBTQ, same-sex marriage, uh, you know, how, however we want to frame it. But it, back in the 1980s, that was still true, <laughs> you know, like when I was growing up. And, yep. and I, I, I think of the words of my friend, Reverend Barber, you know, William Barber down here in North Carolina, he says, uh, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we can end up talking a lot about things Jesus didn't say much about and not talking about the things that Jesus said a whole lot about. And it's interesting that, you know, Jesus doesn't really specifically talk about abortion uh, or same-sex marriage in the context we're thinking of it. And so, and, and yet these have become the, the priority for many folks, whereas there are other things that Jesus talked a lot about. And one of them is nonviolence, you know, loving our enemy, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the children of God. Uh, you know, this, this idea. And so I really started leaning into that. I, think, I mean, some of these other issues matter too. I'm not saying they don't matter. You know, I mean, Jesus didn't talk about nuclear weapons, but I sure think we should be talking about them. You know, so I think that, mm -hmm. that like in the end though, there are some things, as Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that disturb me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand. <laughs> and and this, yes. is one, this, this is one that's crystal clear. You know, I, I think when Jesus said, love your enemy, it means we shouldn't kill them, you know, and it's hard to like love our enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them. And, but yet, like for me, I grew up in a military family. My dad was in Vietnam. I, um, I had no problem holding uh, a cross in one hand and a gun in the other, you know, and yet then I started to see some of those contradictions and those struggles, you know, um, but there's nothing that changed me more than being in Iraq. And just a little bit of the backdrop of how I got there was I heard, so after September 11th, I mean, some of the folks listening may not even remember that, but for a lot of us that were alive, it, it changed a lot of things, right? And, and I mean, I think there was this sense of vulnerability, of fear, of anger. Why do they hate us so much? All these questions that surfaced. And some of the response to that, as, as often happens, was really ugly. Someone in Philadelphia hung a banner on City Hall. I mean, our large, you know, downtown building that said, uh, it said, kill them all and let God sort them out. Mm. So there was that response. And we saw lots of different iterations of that kind of sentiment, right? But then I heard of another group of people who were directly impacted. These were the family members of the victims. I mean, direct family members. So these are the husbands and wives, the children, the mothers and fathers who lost their loved ones in 9-11. And they got together to grieve as a support group. And then as they began to see the you know, response of the war, their outcry became, please do not 
kill in the name of our loved ones. Mm. Um, specifically, I remember hearing him say, our grief is not a cry for war. You know, we're not, uh, not going to end these hostilities by dropping bombs on people. Like, this is not the solution. And they, went, they actually went over on delegations to Iraq and Afghanistan, and they brought back these stories of compassion of Iraqi people that are just weeping with them, right? That sent gifts back to the other families of 9-11. And, you know, in hindsight, some of this is not that surprising. I mean, what we know now is that, you know, I think it was like 14 of the, the terrorists responsible for 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia, you know, not from Iraq. And yet we began to uh, actively go to war with Iraq and Afghanistan. So I got a phone call, Angel, that said, uh, one of my friends said, we're thinking of sending a similar delegation over to Iraq and we would love for you to go, you know? And so that's one of those things where you're like, wow, I think I need to pray about this. I need to talk to my mom on that one. But I had so much clarity and sort of confirmation that, you know, doors open. And I ended up going to Iraq with a group of, I mean, this included doctors and nurses. We had veterans uh, against the war that were with us. We had all kinds of folks. Folks that have been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, it was a beautiful delegation of people, but we were going in at a tragic time, you know, and what ended up happening was we, we weren't, ex you're not exactly sure, you know, uh, how the, everything's going to unfold, but we ended up being in Baghdad as the shock and awe campaign, the bombing of Baghdad happened. And my understanding is that there were times where there were over 900 bombs a day that were being on, dropped on Baghdad. I heard that afterwards. Yeah. We, we lived through that, you know. So I lived in Baghdad during March of 2003. During that, we were volunteering in hospitals. We were going to sites where we had heard there were bombings. We, I mean, visited homes and families that had been bombed. We went to, um, I mean, I, you know, you can only imagine the, 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 the stuff that we saw. But more than anything, what it confirmed inside of me is this, that the way of Jesus <laughs> is very different. The narrow path that leads to life is very different from the kind of knee-jerk reaction that we just need to um, respond with violence. And, and of course, you know, there's so many great teachers, Martin Luther King and others that say, you don't drive out violence. You know, you don't put out fire with fire. You don't put out hate with hate. You know, and yet we've, we've taken, you know, this idea that Jesus said, you, you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. We've lived into that over and over and over so many times that I, I think, you know, this is one of those times that for me changed everything. And there, there were a lot of stories, you know, that I write about from that. But uh, I was there for a month and ended up, you know, there was a window where we decided some of us would come back to the United States and try to continue to tell the stories and to work against the war. And some of our groups stayed in Baghdad and Iraq after that. That I have to say reading, cause your book, Irresistible Revolution, there's so much that I wanted to talk about, but I'm like, okay, we don't have five hours. I can't sit here, you know, there, that's too much. I had to focus in on what was the most impactful to me. And the chapter where you talked about Iraq was just, oh my goodness. I was literally in tears as I was reading it. Can you share some of the stories? Um, Maybe the one about where your car crashed or, you know, um, about the birthday party, some of the like the experiences that really showed you because something you said that totally like blew my mind. I didn't even realize I felt this way was I thought that Iraq was full of like um, Osama bin Laden's and Saddam Hussein's and you found that they actually 
were very kind and hospitable. You know, they were just normal people like us. So can you kind of share some of the personal experiences you had that were really radical for you? Yeah, so I, I did, you know, I, 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 there were some surprises of, of like what I experienced in Iraq, but overwhelmingly what I began to see is that we paint people in a certain way on the news. You know, when all you see uh, from, you know, Muslims or from Iraq is the, you know, Al-Qaeda or the Taliban and these groups that we, we kind of get, they shape our imagination, you know. So when I got to Iraq, first of all, uh, I, I'll tell you one of the first experiences I had, just as the bombs were starting to fall on Baghdad, we had a prayer service and we were invited by a, a, a bunch of Iraqi Christians and clergy to come to this meeting. So we came to this, uh, uh, you know, this prayer meeting, this worship service, and it was packed. I mean, there were just so many people that they flowed into the streets, but we, we were able to get in and it's one of the most powerful services I've ever experienced. The, the bishops from all the different denominations, and there were Christians from all over Iraq and Syria, like the, the whole region was, you know, leaders had come together. And they had written a statement collaboratively that was addressed to Muslim folks. And it said, pretty simply, we want you to know today that we love you. And we declare that you are made in the image of God, just like as we are. We're made from the same dirt that God breathed life into, right? I mean, it's just amazing. And then they, one of the bishops pointed to the cross and said, this cross doesn't make any sense to the wisdom of the world, or the smarts of smart bombs. You know, he's quoting right from the scripture. Mm. This, this, but this cross teaches us another way that may sound like foolishness, but this cross teaches us that uh, we don't have to interact with evil by mirroring that evil. Jesus teaches us another way. So the whole place started erupted in amazing grace in Arabic. They're singing in Arabic, but I, you know, I recognize the song and I'm humming along and, and it's just so moving. And so afterwards I'm, I'm, you know, just stoked. And I, I come up to the altar and I grab the Bishop and I'm like, this is one of the most powerful services I've ever seen, you know, and I'm talking hundred miles an hour and he's, he's just kind of smiling at me. And then I said something, uh, I didn't re realize how ignorant it was, you know, but I'm, I'm just, uh, moving in the spirit you know, and I'm like I had no idea that there are so many Christians in Iraq and then he stops me in my tracks you know and he goes yeah this is where Christianity started and then he points out the window you know and he goes that's the Tigris River and that's the Euphrates have you read about them you know he's <laughs> like the, the Garden of Eden is right down the street you know like, like th this is the land of your ancestors and then he says you didn't invent Christianity in America you just domesticated it. And he oh. said, you go back and you tell the church in the United States that we are praying for them and we're praying for them to remember who they are. Wow. You know, th those words have kind of uh, never left me. They, they just, you know, uh, stuck. And, and so that idea that we're to remember who we are um, and, and we talk more, you know, and he was very confused at why Christians were for this war. Uh, like, like these are people that follow the Prince of Peace. Why don't they see, you know, a different way of doing it? So I had so many experiences that shaped me while I was there. Some of them were terrible. I went to a place called the Amaria Shelter that some folks have never heard of. But this was a, a shelter for women and children in one of the previous bombings. And so I think this was like in 1991, but they've created a memorial to it because they didn't allow men in. They prioritized the women and children. And then we hit it with two smart bombs that exploded this shelter. 
I mean, I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail. There's probably kids listening, but you, you see the silhouettes on the walls from that. Everyone died, you know? And you're like, we wonder why people are upset or angry, you know? And, and you're like, man, th this is exactly the kind of evil that we were grieving from 9-11, right? Like, and we've done it. And so there's a memorial there in Baghdad. So, but I also saw some of the most amazing courage, you know, these doctors that are rescuing children in the middle of bombing. We went and visited children who's, you know, have missile fragments in their bodies. And, and this doctor, I'll never forget, he was holding this little child and he looked up as the jets are still flying over. And he said, this violence, this war is for a world that has lost its imagination. Mm -hmm. And those words, you know, that, that this is for a world that has lost its imagination. And I think that that's exactly what violence and war so often are, is there the inability to try to imagine change outside of just this kind of vengeance and retaliation. And the kids taught us that, you know, you, you mentioned the birthday party. We had a birthday mm -hmm. party in the middle of bombing and the, the bombs started falling as we're celebrating the birthday of this 13 year old. Interestingly enough, her name was Amal her, and, and she, that means hope. And so. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I'm like, I've got some gymnastics background, so I'm like dressed, we're, we're doing handstands and back flips and I got this other friend that's dressed up as a clown, you know, and so we're, we're like celebrating the birthday, but then the bombs start falling. We're like, okay, we probably have to cut it short here. And the kids refused to leave. And they said, no, we've got to keep the party going, right? And one of them smacked, smacked me in the head with a balloon. And there was this sort of resilience, right? and this defiant hope that our party is more powerful than those planes. <laughs> you know, like, like literally we've wow. got our party going. We did, you know, and then we, we asked them all as she's, you know, blowing out the candles on the birthday cake. We said, what do you want for your birthday? And with sort of an innocence, you know, I mean, obviously in that moment, it was the only thing that made sense. She said, I want this war to stop and what was beautiful though is with the kind of characteristic 13 year old you know thing going she smiled really big and she said but if one night when there was no one in my high school and she made that clear she said if one of the bombs hit it and we didn't have school all year that would be awesome <laughs> I could hear my like, or, you know, my thirteen-year-old kid in my neighborhood saying that. You know, I, I think that this is like the recognition that these are kids just like ours. These are families just like ours. That's what I saw everywhere. And then the the one last story I'll just share because it really um, was impactful for us too. Is when we were leaving Iraq, we had this car crash that you mentioned, and you know, the desert road from Baghdad to Amman, Jordan is a really treacherous journey, especially in the war. I mean, cars were on fire, bridges were bombed out. So we're trying to figure out how to get out of the country. And, and a, a number of things happened. But in the end, one of the things that w we experienced was we hit something in the road. And we're not sure exactly what it was, but it, our car ended up flipping over. And, you know, we, we ran off the road, it flipped up on its side. And all of us were injured. I was one of the least injured. I had like a separated shoulder. And, you know, we had two friends that had uh, major injuries. So we're 
climbing out of the window of the car, right? And we get to the side of the road and there's no one. I mean, we haven't seen, you just didn't see anyone traveling, of course. And so we start praying. I mean, what else do you do? You know, and I'm obviously very concerned. One of my friends is, is, has a very bad head injury. And first car that we see in the horizon, you know, it gets bigger and bigger as it gets closer. And these guys jump out, these Iraqi guys, and they take care of us. They take us in and they drive us into the nearest town. It's a little town of, I think, like 20,000 people called Al-Rutba. As we get there, the whole town has been devastated with the bombs. There's one thing after another, and they take us through and they show us the bombs. And then they explain to us that one of the bombings just hit our hospital and it hit the children's ward. This is our country, right? And so they, they're, they're saying all this just to explain to us that they can't, the hospital's closed. And so, you know, we're devastated. We're like, well, where's the nearest hospital to this one? You know, I mean, we're in the middle of the desert. And they said, no, 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 you misunderstood us. We're just telling you we can't take care of you in the hospital. And they said, we've already set up a clinic for you. And they literally had a bed for each of us. People started bringing us food and water and blankets. And this doctor, this Iraqi doctor saved my friends' lives wow. um, as our country is bombing them, right? And so I'm so moved by this that I start thinking, well, we need to pay them, you know, like, let's give them whatever money we have. And I get this big pile of money from all of us. I mean, we also are leaving the country, but we, you know, we give them everything we got. I get this pile of Iraqi dinar and I go to give it a head doctor. It looks at me and he says, I, I said to him, we want to say thank you. And he says back to me, then say thank you. <laughs> he pushes back the money and he says, we don't want your money. We want you to know that we love you. And we have no other motivation. We don't need your money. He said, all we want you to know is that we care about you. And we hope, and I'll never forget this. He said, if you found us wounded on the side of the road in America, you would do the same thing. Wow. It's like... A modern version of the Good Samaritan almost is what what happened. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can't, I can, you know, I can't imagine that story any differently now. Every time I read the Samaritan story, and I think that's part of the point of the story too, is that, you know the it's a, it's a bunch of surprises of generosity and compassion. Um, but we named a community uh, here in the U.S. after that. You know, Arutba. Uh, it's called Rootba House. It's it's in Durham, North Carolina, and we've always wanted to go back. So a few years ago, we got to go back, and just to make it really quick, we go back to this town, right? And we meet all the doctors that had saved our lives like ten years before. They take us to the mayor's office. I mean, it's this huge, you know, celebration, and we retell the story of of, of what happened. And the mayor says, "Well, we need uh, to keep these friendships going because this is what heals the wounds of violence." Not yes. more violence. And he says. We need a sister city. So naturally from Philly, it means a city of love. I'm like, Philadelphia, we'll be a sister city with Rupa. And he's like, no, 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 it's too big. He says, we need a little town that we can keep in touch with. And then he says, I've only been to one town in America. And he said, uh, it's in North Carolina. It's called Durham. And that's where Rupa House is, right? I tell him, oh my gosh, you know, I've got tears rolling down my face. I said, oh my gosh. We, have, we have a community that's named after this experience called Rupa House. And it's in Durham, North Carolina. And the mayor throws his hands up, just like God has spoken, right? And he goes, then it's done. You know? <laughs> and, he says, and then the mayor says, we will start a community of peacemaking in Rupa and we'll name it Durham House. 
How about that? I, so I, the, the spirit just moved in all of this. I, I, you know, you can tell, Angel, that these experiences, they open up our imagination, they open up our hearts, and they also change the way that we think about Iraq or the way that we think about this war, because now this war has casualties, names and faces. And I think part of that is what happens in wars. It ends up just being, you know, this is our enemy. This is Iraq, you know, it's thousands of miles away. Uh, and yet when you hear stories like that, they change everything. Absolutely. You wrote a blog, I think it was called, Will the Real Pro-Life Political Party Please Stand Up? And you kind of talked about some of the, you know, people tend to associate the Republican party as the pro-life party. The war has killed hundreds of thousands of people. And so really you can't say you're pro-life if you're not pro-all life. Um, and so I kind of did some research and I didn't know this, but in Obama's term, which are two terms, I guess I should say, there were 563 airstrikes he initiated. And so that kind of reminded me of your blog where I'm like, oh, so Democrats get this quote unquote image is like, oh, we're the peaceful party. And it's like, no, if you look back, both parties have been guilty. So something that, like you said, at the very, very beginning, was that your, I didn't know that your dad was a veteran. So yeah. as I was reading this, I was kind of having like an inward struggle because I have several family members who are in the military. So I too have a high respect for these men and women that are, you know, essentially if you get deployed, you're literally, you might not come back. So that's like a big, you know, that's to be commended. So is there a way you think that we can honor soldiers and even veterans, of course, without saying that we're okay with war? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's the perfect question we need to ask because the, the, the folks that are suffering from war are not just Iraqi folks and the, you know, the kind of collateral damage, the casualties of war, but it's also those who are on the other side of those bombs and guns, right? I just began when we were leaving Iraq, the, the, the ground troops were starting to come in. So we didn't have a ton of interaction with them. This was more the airstrikes that were happening. But since then, a lot of our our friends in Iraq have had interactions with troops. And I've had a lot of interactions with folks coming back as veterans of the Iraq war. I've got dog tags here on my desk that were given to me from veterans in Iraq. And one of the things that they told me over and over and over, I've heard different iterations of this, is that we went to Iraq because we wanted to end terrorism but we became convinced that we are helping create it. Wow. That when you see the kind of things that they saw, that I saw, you get the sense that this is not de-escalating the hostilities, but this is just ramping them up, you know? Um, and I, one, one Iraqi soldier said, I felt like I was dying and killing for abstract nouns. And I'll never forget that, you know, he's yeah. like freedom, democracy, and when we were there, we saw how much more complex this kind of violent ecosystem is, right? That when I was in Iraq, one of these Iraqi intellectuals I was meeting with, he said, well, you, you, your country knows that Saddam Hussein has some weapons because you have the receipts from them. Mm. And he said, literally, you helped Saddam Hussein come into power. You armed him. The 60 bell helicopters that Saddam used to gas the Kurds that we saw the horrific images of, that there's absolutely no one trying to defend that. But we gave those weapons to Saddam Hussein, right? And this is where you see that idea that like, you pick up the sword, you die by the sword, right? And that's where, you know, so many of these veterans, especially the Christians, felt conflicted. You know, I've heard over and over them say, you know, 
here I am carrying the cross in one hand. I'm trying to carry a, you know, a semi-automatic in the other. I spoke at Liberty University in, in Virginia, where Jerry Falwell was at once the president of that school. And, and, and I talked about peace. And afterwards, one of the first per people that beelined to the altar to pray with me, this is what he said. While you were in Iraq, experiencing the bombing, I was on the other side dropping the bomb. Wow. And he started, he started to choke up. And he said, I know how many people we killed because they would give us reports of it. And he said, I've been living with that burden on my shoulder and I wanted to see if you would pray with me. And we prayed together, right? And I, I began to realize the leading cause of death of military service members and veterans is not combat. It is suicide. Is it suicide? Yeah. More veterans are taking their own lives than are losing their lives in combat. So you really start to see that this is something that if we want to care for veterans, if we want to build a better world, if we want to be pro-life, we need to stand against the patterns of, of violence and war. We, may, we need to be the hardest people in the world to convince that violence is ever a necessary evil. I don't believe that. You know, I believe that Jesus interrupts violence over and over and over, even to the point where he's like staring it in the face on the cross and saying, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Mm. Um, Peter picks up a sword to defend Peter, uh, uh, Jesus. Uh, Jesus's response is unmistakable. He scolds Peter after he cuts this guy's ear off, right? In self-defense. And he says, no, put that sword away. You know, this is not how we do it. And he heals the man that Peter wounded. And the early Christians, I mean, they understood the message crystal clear. They said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian. Like wow. if, ever, if ever there was a case to try to use violence to protect the innocent, I mean, Peter had the best case in, in, you know, there ever was. And yet we see that for Christ, we can die, but we cannot kill. So I think that's what we've got to teach our kids. Even in the early church, when someone was in the military and they committed their life to Jesus and they were baptized, their whole career was reconsidered, right? Um, and not just in, for folks in the military, but people that worked in the brothels or the gladiatorial games, you know, they just said that there are some career tracks, <laughs> you know, that are a direct collision with our discipleship of Jesus. Mm. And, you know, we would say that today. If you, if you, you know, if you're a stripper or you work in a porn store, like you might want to rethink your job, you know, like when you, in light of Jesus, but somehow we don't extend that same questioning, you know, to interrogate other vocations. Like if we're working for in, in a combative role in the military, if we're working for a company like Lockheed Martin, that's building its entire profits off of war making, like, doesn't it mean that we should reconsider that job? So I think that's exactly the right question. And for some people that doesn't feel politically correct. It doesn't like, we just want everybody to be able to be a Christian. But the problem is we lose the distinctiveness and the cost of discipleship if we water that down. So, you know, I think we, we need to be uh, talking about that. And you're exactly right in, in, in naming the fact that this is not a partisan issue. Many of these things are not partisan issues when it comes to violence. Both parties have been for the death penalty until just recently, right? I mean, even in 
in a, a, um, a lot of states, Democrats and Republicans are for the death penalty. The obstacle of some of our gun violence reforms that would be there. And when it comes to the military, it's even more clear. Both Democrat and Republicans keep increasing the military budget, creating things like drones. And sometimes folks will say that I'm not, I wasn't critical of Barack Obama. I was absolutely, you know, we wrote our whole book, Jesus for President, and talk about the military spending that happened both under Bush and Obama. The bombing of the um, Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Kunduz in Afghanistan, that happened under Obama. So there's so many atrocities of war that have happened regardless of whether there's a Democrat or Republican president. And you don't have many people right now that are saying we need to decrease the military spending. I mean, even when we live in a, in a country where the Pentagon spends in three seconds the same amount that the average American makes in a year, three, every three seconds, right? Wow. We've, got, we've got bombs that are 80 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb. That, that, that kind of thing, I think we just got to go, man, there's no place for this. And, and Christians uh, who follow the one who said, blessed are the peacemakers, we should be demanding the end of nuclear weapons. We should be saying, we don't need to blow up the world 10 times. Let's decrease the Pentagon budget by, you know, and we can talk through, like, I think some of the, the weeds of these conversations. But to me, to be pro-life does not just mean to be pro-birth. I still care deeply about abortion, reducing abortions, and I'm writing a book on this right now that, that's about a better ethic of life, right? But the fact is that America may be the only place in the world where you can say you're pro-life and still be pro-war, pro-guns, pro-military, you know, pro-death penalty, anti-life on every other issue but abortion. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. It gets misconstrued a lot. I agree with that. So I guess the next point is, we obviously can't just take all of the U.S. troops and just withdraw them and just say, come home, all of you, the war's over, all of it, stay home, you know, we're done. What are some nonviolent strategies that could be employed instead of military tactics? And also along with that, as far as military strategy, what are some ways that us as civilians can get more vocal and involved? Yeah, so we, we can look at some of history. And, and, and now I, I think that you can make a case for instances in history where war has worked, you know, and, and, and I think you can also make a case in history where nonviolent movements have worked to end evil, you know, dictatorships and, and things like that. So to me, the question is not just what works, but what looks the most like Jesus, right? For those of us that followed you, like which one is faithful to that calling? And that's where I think it becomes very clear that for Christ, we can die, but we cannot kill. Courage looks different in light of Jesus. Courage is not just picking up a sword like Peter did. Peter, you know, it's actually dying on the cross like Peter eventually did. I mean, he eventually gets it, right? And so I think we've got to be willing to die for something. And that's where we need courage. Even Gandhi, one of the champions of nonviolence, he said, if I have to choose between a coward and a soldier, give me the soldier any day over the coward, because that passion and that courage can be channeled in to nonviolent solutions, but you can't do much with a coward, right? So I think that's where, why Jesus maybe had so many zealots on board was they were willing to die. I mean, some of them were willing to kill too, so he's teaching them another way, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of great movements that we can look to. Um, Gandhi's movement in India 
the people power movement in the Philippines, where, you know, uh, an entire movement committed to nonviolence, trained in nonviolence by the thousands with people of faith at the very heart of it was able to overthrow tyrannical leadership there. You know, that happens in many ways in different places in Latin America. You know, we, we can build nonviolent movements. Um, the civil rights movement in this country, the fall of apartheid in South Africa, many of the things that have changed the world have had nonviolence at the core of them. And that's not to say there weren't iterations of violence that were also connected to them, but really what changed things was this passionate organizing around nonviolence. And so I, I think as we think of what it's going to take to build a better world, I'm encouraged by movements that are happening all over the world. Uh, even when I went to Afghanistan, I was meeting with a group of young people. These are like 15 years old that have studied Dr. King and Gandhi, and they're building a, a, a movement of nonviolence in Kabul in Afghanistan. So this is happening all over the world, and I, I think we can be encouraged. But we also oftentimes, when we talk about violence, we're reactionary rather than preventative. So for instance, we are still, right now as we speak, selling weapons of mass destruction to Saudi Arabia. Ironically, the country where we actually know the terrorists, some of them who were responsible for 9-11 came from, and we're still selling them weapons, right? Wow. So over a hundred countries have bought weapons from U.S. contractors. Sometimes I say it's kind of like if I were selling guns to kids in my neighborhood and going, now don't shoot each other. You know, we're just, yeah. we're just trying to make a little money here. Like this is horrible, it's, it's, it's crazy, right? I think we've got to defund and boycott and stop the dealing of weapons uh, around the world because it's exactly what we saw with Saddam Hussein is he did do terrible things and we gave him the arsenal to do it. Mm, that's awful. When I was reading your book, I kind of put tabs on things and just what you said, oh, the preemptive love coalition. Yeah. It reminds me of that because their, their um, motto is love now and ask questions later. And so I feel like that, that kind of ties back into what you were saying with not being reactionary. So good. And if folks are not familiar with Jeremy Courtney and the Preemptive Love Coalition, you should check it out. He's got a book called Preemptive Love. But this, all of this started around the same time, right? When we were coming back from Iraq, Preemptive Love was starting. I've, I've had the honor of being a little supporter of Preemptive Love from the beginning. But they're, what they originally started doing was similar to Doctors Without Borders and other groups. They said, we are going to offer life-saving surgeries to children, no matter who their parents are. Mm. And that might not sound like much, but it, I think at one point there were thousands and thousands of children that were on the wait, waiting list for these surgeries. And if they didn't have them, they would die. These are all like life-saving surgeries. And they have so many stories. I get chill bumps just thinking about it, of, of like how the Holy Spirit has worked in these circumstances where, for instance, they find out that this child they're getting ready to operate on, their dad is a known, is wanted, right? Is, is in one of these extremist groups. And they said, well, what do we do? Well, this is not a, not a hard question, right? I mean, even Roman says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If, and certainly that should imply, you know, if their child is dying, let's try to do something beautiful for them. That's where the name preemptive love, love now and ask questions later, right? It's never wrong to save a child's life. And they started doing it. It's unbelievable. Just one, you know, one thing after another. And, and also to see what that does to someone who is right now 
inclined to do tremendous harm and violence. And then they find, find out that not only did you save their kid, but the doctor that performed the surgery is an American. And wait, he's also a Christian. You know what I mean? And so it's like all, and they, they've even had to fly some of the children from Iraq to Israel and they've had Jewish doctors that have performed these surgeries. So it's just, it is that holy work of trespassing over the cultural boundaries, the religious walls, all of that to try to show love and compassion and that disarm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is a, a kind of microcosm, but it's, it's, it raises a question of what is going to disarm folks. And I think when we have masses of people living in desperate poverty, while a handful of people have unimaginable wealth, when we have a world that has such inequities, you know, in the U.S., we've got 5% of the world's population, but we've got half the world's nuclear bombs. We've got so much of the world's wealth concentrated here. And it's a very fragile world that we've created. So we've got to have courage. And, you know, groups like Christian Peacemaker Teams, that's who I went to Iraq with, Preemptive Love. These groups, one of the founding principles of Christian Peacemaker Teams is that unless we have as much courage for the cross that people have courage for war, war is going to continue to triumph. Unless we're willing to die for nonviolence with as much passion as people have been willing to die for violence, then nothing's going to change. Like, do we really believe that Jesus meant the stuff he said? Do we really believe that the cross offers an alternative to the sword or the bomb? Mm. And that, that brings a good point too, because it's one thing to kind of say all the like oh i'm a christian i'm this i'm that but to actually live it out is completely different of like you know your whole pretty much your whole ministry and everything is kind of doing something that's completely in many ways like risk-taking you know you're like oh the bible says this but i'm going to actually live next to the people who are poor i'm going to do the work and so i think that's that's amazing it's kind of like um you know if you're going to talk the talk walk the walk or whatever it's it's one of those type situations but one thing that I, I found this in myself is that huge issues like human trafficking or racial inequality thing, you know, obviously war is one of those too. They can seem so overwhelming as if no matter what we do, it's not really going to make a difference. So what encouragement can you offer to people who maybe want to see this come to an end? Well, this, this is what I, there's a couple of things. I, I love your question and I, I, I've become convinced that a lot of times our biggest problem is not a compassion problem, but it's a proximity problem. It's a relational disconnect. We're just we're layers away from the proximity to the pain. And so what we've got to do, I think, is keep leaning in. Rather than the cultural patterns that are going to move us away from suffering, away from pain, out of neighborhoods where there's high crime, to live around people who all look like us, whatever. Like those are the cultural patterns. But the gravity of the gospel is very different from that. I mean, literally what happens in Jesus is God leaves all the comfort of heaven and joins the struggle here on earth and is not just born into anybody, but is born into a brown-skinned, Palestinian, Jewish, refugee body in almost every way we can conceive, is marginalized. As Jesus is born, we remember that this Christmas, you know, we remember it as this beautiful thing, and it, it was, but it's also true that Herod was so intimidated by rumors of this Savior that was being born that he started killing children. 
separating kids from their parents. And so this is not just a romantic story. This is also, it's a story of how good God is in light of how bad we can be. <laughs> you know, mm, like, and, and the power. And I mean, what Jesus does on the cross is he absorbs all the violence of the world and triumphs over it with love and forgiveness and an empty tomb. So, so God's moving near to the suffering, and, and that's what we're called to do. And I don't think that means everybody's going to go to Iraq or move into the you know, inner city or something like that. But I think what all of us have to do, we have to ask, how can we lean in? Rather than like moving away from the Black Lives Matter movement, the cry in our streets that's saying we can't breathe, we should actually be sensitized to that. We're worshiping a victim of violence, you know, like on the cross. So like it should make us more sensitive to those who are suffering in the world. You know, I, I heard someone say that the hardest part of um, running a marathon isn't getting to the finish line, it's getting to the starting line. We've got to go where the work is already being done. You know, there are already people that are writing letters to folks in prison. So join them. You know, right now, many prisoners can't have any visitors, can't even see their, their children and their spouses because of the pandemic. Let's remember those who are vulnerable. Let's write letters. Let's build relationships. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways that we can do that to extend how we define family beyond just our nuclear family. And certainly fostering and adopting is one way to do that. But I think there's all kinds of ways that we can, as Jesus said, he said, who is my family? Mother Teresa said it so well. She said, uh, sometimes our biggest problem is that the circle that we draw around our family is too small. We limit family just to biology. Or in our case in America, nationalism is one of those things that I think is too small, right? It's a love for our own people is a good thing, but our love doesn't stop at a, at a border. No wall should hold back our love and compassion. If someone's suffering on a side that we call Mexico, it's a child of God as much as it's a child of God of our own biological descent. So I think that's where if we really believe in this idea that we are born again, come on, right? I'm going to take that word back. Amen. I, I, I think that means that these children that are dying in Iraq or the, the kids that are in detention centers on our border, like it should keep us up at night. So I think that's the radical call, uh, you know, that's at the heart of Christ and, and at the heart of this idea that we're born again, that, you know, we've got something that is even more central than biology or nationality. And that is that every person's made in the image of God. Yes, absolutely. That's so true. So some people don't know exactly what your ministry, because you have two now, you have the simple way and red letter Christians, right? So yeah. can you kind of tell people just a little bit about about what it is that you guys do and the work you're doing in the world. Totally. So I, I sometimes think of it as the two feet I walk on. The simple way is our local work on the north side of Philly and Red Letter Christians is our sort of national and international work proclaiming the message. So with the local work, we're doing all kinds of stuff we've been doing for the last 25 years. We're right now, the, the simple way is giving out meals to thousands of folks. And it's my neighbors, my friends that are leading all of that, folks that have lived in the neighborhood longer than me, like my friend Miguel Diaz, that's delivering bags to seniors in their homes and making sure that kids have 
uh, nutritious meals because they can't rely on school lunches. And so all that, so there's new questions, but we're doing all that work even in the middle of the pandemic. We just acquired five houses that we uh, were, are abandoned that we'll be fixing up into affordable housing with simple homes or, or like local affordable housing. So, so all that, you can find it on our website and on my social media. And uh, we're trying to raise $30,000 for our next affordable housing uh, right now called Homes for the Holidays. So uh, we're doing that. And then with the Red Letter Christian stuff, we became really convinced that, that the church in America is in a crisis. You know, that th this current era that we're living through is not just a political crisis, but it's also a spiritual one. And, and so um, our name comes from the Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red, you know, red letter Christians. And kind of asking the question, what if Jesus meant the stuff he said? We want, to we want our Christianity to be more Christ-like. <laughs> you know, and it was Gandhi that said, uh, Gandhi was asked about Christianity and he said, oh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. Uh, so that, I know. That's what we want. Yeah, that's what we want. Every time I hear that, it gets me. I'm like, oh, it's not Jesus who are turning people away. It's us, people who are claiming to follow him. So it's like, breaks my heart every time I hear that. <laughs> But it's helpful to also have a perspective that's bigger than just America, too, you know, because I think American evangelicalism is in a funk, in a, in a real terrible way. But, you know, as you go to Iraq, you go to some of these other places, you see, wow, the landscape of Christianity is big. And so I do want to do something, you know, at the heart of this crisis here in our country. And Red Letter Christians, folks can see our work. Uh, redletterchristians.org. We've got a, a whole bunch of different speakers and writers and musicians and, you know, a blog and all that, a radio show and podcast, all that stuff. But we're trying to change the narrative, you know, and part of how we do that is by changing the narrators. So it's not just kind of white evangelical men and televangelists that are framing priorities of Christians, but we're really going back to Jesus. We, we say that we're harmonizing, but not homogenizing. So, you know, we've got a diverse group of uh, folks that are all preaching Jesus and justice. Hey, that, I think that's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. I, I was just reading, um, there's another book that your community was mentioned in. I think it's called The Way of Jesus, Reforming Spiritual Communities. Yeah. And that's exactly the whole premise of the book is, you know, in our heads, we're like, oh, we have to go to church on Sundays. It's four walls. And he's like, no, it's. Jesus wasn't in a church. He wandered around the country. He, you know, was out there with the quote unquote, you know, bad people, you know, like the prostitutes and tax collectors and stuff. So I, exactly what you're saying is true. We, we should all, everyone is welcome. And yeah. too often we, we try to, like you said, with our circle, okay, well you're in, but you're out. And that's not what Jesus calls us to do. So I love that. Yeah, it's exactly right. And not only was he with those on the margins, he was centering the margins, right? So like, his harshest words, like brood of vipers, were actually for the religious elite, right? And he says to them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, take that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like how Sister Joan Chittister, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, Angel. She's a wonderful Benedictine nun. She says, if you look at Jesus, you can see that he consistently challenges the chosen and includes the excluded, right? So everybody thought they were the hub of everything. He's going, no, God's bigger than that. And those who thought that they would never be included in the kingdom are actually at the very center of it. Wow, that's beautiful. No, I haven't heard her. I need to look her up. I've 
Oh yeah, she's a gem. She's a good yep. one. I need to write that down. So if people want to donate to your ministries, want to buy your books, want to listen to your podcast, all the things, can you tell them, you know, what the best way to do that would be? Like, is this, is it just the simple way.com or is it work? Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. There's probably two of the best ways to do that are the simple way.org. That's our local work. And then redletterchristians.org is our national work and folks can follow me on twitter and facebook and like the homes for the holidays and all that stuff i'm posting all that up and i'm pretty active on those two mediums i think we're getting ready to start instagram but the, yeah we're right now on twitter and facebook just at my name shane claiborne it's been so nice to talk to you and i'm i'm grateful for the conversation angel Thank oh you. of course no no i'm i'm the blessed one here I, like i said um i read your book and then I actually loaned it to a friend, but then I wanted to borrow it back because I, you know, preparing for the interview, I'm like, I need to reread the chapters and I didn't want to like take it back from her. So I bought the new 10 year anniversary edition and I love it because it, from reading the first time, you kind of just added notes of like updates and stuff. So I, I got to, you know, hear all some of the, one of the things that cracked me up was um, you talked about when you come, had just come back from the Middle East, there was like a lawsuit or something against you guys. Like they were trying yeah. to sue you and you ended up getting fined, but you paid it in Iraqi dinar. Is that what it's called? So can you tell just that I, I was cracking up about that? <laughs> yeah. So, well, this is one of the things, I think it's lovely that we talked so much about Iraq because obviously the book goes into all different things, but the 10 year anniversary edition, as you know, that was somebody else's idea to write that. And they said, go back and like fill in the blanks, you know, change, say, I wish, you know, I might've said this differently 10 years. But like when I wrote the first, you know, edition, I hadn't been back to Iraq uh, the second time. So it's been really cool to, you know, share some of those stories. So when we got back, as, as John Lewis says, you know, we're called to be, to do good trouble. And, and when you do things like taking, I mean, this, this, this is, this is wild, but you, you like taking medication to Iraq was technically illegal. And that's part of what we were challenging. What we wanted to challenge the US sanctions on Iraq, which included that we couldn't send medication, uh, even through missions to Iraq, to these doctors. So we publicly took medication to Iraq. So incidentally, this, this um, lawsuit was brought against the doctors for publicly taking medication. And they faced up to 15 years in prison for taking Gosh. medication to Iraq. These are things that folks don't know, you know, and that's why it's like, I believe in our entire Christian history, we have this tradition of civil disobedience, or as I like to say, divine obedience, you know, obeying God <laughs> over men. And these laws, as, as Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. It's our duty to disobey the bad laws and sanctions as much as it's our duty to obey the good ones. So that's what we did. And so we went to court and the lawyers were on trial. And this was a conservative appointed judge that was overseeing the trial and literally saw the disparities in this trial was like, the state is trying to sue these doctors, you know, and, and he, he literally said, the state's got a hard case to prove on this one, you know? So they eventually no one faced jail time, thank God, you know, but they did get fined, which is still boggles the mind. And I think the fine was like, $20,000 or something, you know, there's, there's this call at the heart of Jesus to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. And I always like the story of when he pays his taxes by pulling the money out of the fish's mouth, you know, so it's like what, what, what some theologians have called uh, revolutionary subordination, you know, so we are to be subordinate, but we're to transcend 
these powers around us, right? So the, the, the solution to the fine was to pay the fine in Iraqi dinar, in the currency of Iraq, which because of the war and sanctions just collapsed. And so what was originally $20,000, I think ended up being like $5 or something like that. So that's- I think <laughs> it says eight in the book. Eight. It was eight dollars. You know better than me. Yeah. So that's what it was at the time. So, you know, ironically, what that did, though, was that it held a mirror up, you know, and it kind of exposed the insanity of what we've done. Mm. And, it, and it was, I think, one of the best examples of that revolutionary subordination that I've seen. Yep. So I, I'm curious. I, I just I'm picturing like the, whoever they had to pay the fine to their face when they like open the bag and they're like, what is this? Like, it must have been, you know, must have been a cool moment. So. Well, Shane, it's been just wonderful. Um, I'm going to have to go read all of your other books now because I'm just so curious. I love this one so much. Um, thank you for taking your time out of your busy holiday weekend to, to talk to everybody. It's been so good. Thank you, Angel. And we're doing a little four-week study during Advent on Jesus for President. It's free, so come join us, Angel. Tell all your listeners. That, oh. You know, it's on, our, on my, uh, all my socials. But, um, yeah, it's free and open to everybody. If they want to study oh. Jesus for President through Christmas here, we'll do it. So, But yeah. keep, keep in touch. Keep doing everything you're doing. Bless you. Yes, sir. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Encourageous Podcast. I hope today's story left you feeling encouraged and inspired. Come back every other Thursday for a new episode and be sure to subscribe. Your support makes a world of a difference, especially for a new and bi-weekly podcast like this one. If you want to connect with me on social, you can find me on both Instagram and Facebook at The Encourageous Podcast. Until next time, stay encourageous. Encourageous.